you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Get outside and explore Chicago on a CAFC river cruise aboard Chicago's First Lady. Now open and adhering to public health safety standards. Called the number one boat tour in Chicago by TripAdvisor, CAC docents share the fascinating secrets and stories behind more than 50 famous buildings facing the Chicago River. Delight in panoramic views and hear how our hometown became world-renowned for its architecture. Book your tickets today at architecture.org. Hey, college students. Are you looking for a way to get ahead this summer? Northwestern University is offering hundreds of undergrad courses online this summer. Choose an intensive sequence in learning. Registration is open now. Visit northwestern.edu slash summer for details. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Friday, July 10th is moments away. But before we do this, we got to thank the following unions for sponsoring this program. By the way, if you're listening to this show, we have over 500,000 downloads. And if you own a business, boy, we would love to sponsor it. That's right. Uh, just contact Tracy Bame at the Chicago Reader. And uh, I don't know, find the number for the Sun-Times and call someone there and uh, say, hey, I want to sponsor the Ben Jarofsky show. I'm not sure who you asked for, but uh, yeah, that'd be fantastic if you uh, became a sponsor. Well, I'll make a commercial. We'll do a Ben will do a live read. He loves live reads. But seriously, uh, I would love to add your business or union to this list. I am about to read the Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9. That's correct. The International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. That's correct. And of course, today's Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you by our dear friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Let me tell you about voting by mail. It's pretty cool. Voting by mail ensures equitable access for everyone. Normally, vote by mail applications are filled out online or in person. This creates a burden for people with limited access to transportation or internet services. Disproportionately, the elderly or people of color who are among those at greatest risk from COVID-19. Because of the pandemic, a law was passed in Illinois for November requiring vote by mail applications be sent to anyone who voted in 2018, 2019, or the 2020 primary. This falls short of what is needed particularly since these elections saw low turnout. We need to expand access. Mail-in voting is the best way to ensure everyone's voice can be heard safely. We can help expand voting access in Chicagoland by asking officials to send every eligible voter a vote-by-mail application. So, visit VoteMailChicago.com. That's VoteMailChicago.com. Dot com for call scripts and a petition. One more time. Vote. V-O-T-E. Mail. M-A-I-L. Chicago. C-H-I-C-A-G-O. Dot com to make sure that every voter in Cook County has safe and equitable polling. That's correct. 
Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Ernst, filling in for Dr. D once again. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, July 16th, 2020 begins now. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this felonious Republicans Thursday. And here's why. Before we get to that, first of all, yes, yes, indeed. That was uh, Brian sitting in for Dennis. Dennis is still back in Alton and probably be there till Saturday. He'll be back next week. Great job with that music, Brian. I uh, brought, That was Brian playing bongos and guitar on that thing. Got so really many switches up. over here. It's like, <laughs> I feel like I got eight arms. Uh, anyway, just call him the octopus. All right. Anyway, uh, so Dennis will be back next week. <clears throat> and now let me get into the news, uh, starting with Trump mixes up his campaign team. I got at least three text messages this morning from various listeners telling me, hey, Ben, talk about Trump uh, switching up his campaign t- team. Hey, Ben, talk about how Trump's in trouble. All right. Let's take the deep dive on uh, this one. Uh, yes, indeed. Trump apparently had no choice. He's down in the polls. Uh, he's I would say he's in desperate straits. Uh, and uh, if you don't believe me, believe a map that a Frank listener, Frank, sent to me. Frank, thank you very much. Uh, and it's a, a, the latest electoral college map. So again, one more time, ladies and gentlemen, as you all know, our president is selected not by the vote of the people of the United States of America, but by our electoral college system, crazy system that we have so that you can lose the popular vote and still be president. And, and people are going, Ben, get over that. I said, no, I'm not getting over that. Democrats have lost twice in the last 20 years due, due to this electoral college system. And as David Ferris points out, whenever he comes on this show, there is no way, no way the Republicans would have tolerated this if they'd been in the uh, the roles have been reversed in 2020. And Al Gore had lost uh, to George Bush uh, in, because of the electoral college system or more to the point in 20. Uh, 04, 2004, when George Bush running for re-election against John Kerry, he won the popular vote, but only won the Electoral College because of Ohio. So just saying Republicans were probably along uh, down the road toward getting rid of it because they play to win. Democrats play to run around and lose weight or something. I don't know what to do. Anyway, uh, in 2016, as you all know, Trump uh, won, even though he lost, uh, beating Hillary Clinton in Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. And right now he trails in double digits in Pennsylvania and Michigan, according to the polls. Uh, And uh, the prognosticators have those states leaning Democrat. Uh, But the insiders know they're probably solid Democrat. And so Donald Trump has to make a big decision. Does he bother to even campaign there? Does he just concede those states uh, to uh, Biden? And uh, it's a big decision for Donald Trump's campaign to make. That means if Biden wins Wisconsin, North Carolina, Arizona, North, uh, I already said North Carolina, or Florida, uh, he's popping champagnes, he wins. So if he holds on again to those big leads that he has in Michigan and Pennsylvania and can pick up just one of those states that I mentioned, he is elected president of the United States. He'll probably have. I've always thought that uh, Joe Biden or whoever the nominee, uh, the Democratic nominee uh, was, was going to win the popular vote. I think it will be a greater popular vote victory than Hillary Clinton had. But uh, so this is how close Electoral College is. This is how close Joe Biden is to having an insurmountable lead in the Electoral College. And this is why there's desperate times over at the Trump campaign headquarters. He's also, Biden is within striking distance in Ohio, 
Texas and Georgia. And these are three states. These are three states that Donald Trump just took for granted that he would win. So now Trump has a big decision. Does he even bother? We talked about what his decision would be in Pennsylvania and Michigan. Now he's got to decide, do I send, now suddenly do I have to send money and troops down to Georgia, Texas, where I thought I wouldn't have to spend the money in Ohio? Suddenly he has to decide how he's going to spend his his campaign dollars. And, you know, it's it'd be like if Biden had to decide whether he was going to spend money in, say, California or Illinois or Delaware, even, you know, states where he just assumed he was uh, going to win. So, yes, indeed, Donald Trump is in trouble. Uh, and when Donald Trump is in trouble, generally, he blames someone else. He looks for someone to blame because he's certainly not going to blame it on himself. That is for sure. <laughs> I'm trying to work Very on my timing. Bro. It's so hard to do <laughs> from, uh, from Berwyn. <laughs> he's out of Berwyn. He's like, he's going, oh, Dennis, man, where's the, where's the uh, Mueller? Boom. He pulls that Mueller tape. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Did you find the Biden one? I can't remember. Did you find the Biden one where he talks about the talk to your kids? You still have the radio. Make sure your television, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The the, the phone, make sure the kids hear words. Oh, yeah. And then there's uh, Jeff Trump, not a doctor. I don't, unfortunately. Uh, unfortunately. That one didn't make it as far down the pike as we would have hoped. See, Dennis, this, here's the thing about Dennis. He's an equal opportunity uh, trickster. So if he's going to play one of those things, uh, making Biden look bad, you know he's going to do uh, one for Trump and vice versa anyway. <laughs> but when you pull that Mueller one out of nowhere, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> All right. The real thing is, uh, does it cause me to lose my place where I am? No, because I'm a pro. Here we go. All right. So, uh, yes, as I said, Donald can't blame himself. So he looks for someone to blame. Uh, Brad Parscale is the guy he blames as the campaign manager. See ya. Bill Stepien is in. And uh, so now I'm thinking, Brad Parscale's gone. Bill Stepien is in. And I'm like, Hmm, that name, Stepien. How do I know that name? And I, I was thinking this, folks. I wasn't looking it up, I swear. This is how my brain works. I was like, that name, I, it's always a challenge. You know, I always, we were talking about this yesterday. Like, as you get older, you want to make sure you're not losing it. Okay, so it, it, we talked about the diagnostic test that Donald Trump took. Well, this is like the Ben test. So it's like that name. How do I know that name? I'm going, you know, back in my brain, trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, where do I know it? Where's it from? And I'm like tempted to go to the internet and look at it, but I don't want to go to the internet and look at it because I want to really test my, remember the diagnostic te- test yesterday. We talked about that. Uh, the month is July. The day is Thursday. And the line after, Ooh, I need your love, babe is guess, you know, it's true. Uh, that's just a more uh, boomer jokes. Anyway, that has occurred to me. Bridgegate. That's where I knew of stepping in. Bridgegate. Oh, my goodness. He was one of Chris Christie's age during Bridgegate. And let me tell you, folks, that was one of my favorite scandals. This goes back to 2013, 2014, when I wasn't really covering national politics that much, mostly utterly obsessed with local politics. But that didn't mean I wasn't also obsessed with national politics. I just didn't really have an outlet. For it. So I'd be reading about it, thinking about it and talking about it and looking for people to talk about 
it too, which is kind of a dangerous position to be in because not everybody in my world is literally obsessed with national politics. I'll be stopping strangers in the street. Hey, what about Bridgegate? Anyway, all right, Bridgegate, let me bring you back in the time because it really is. I had, I did go back to the internet and did uh, reread it, about it, and it just brought back a flood of memories. So let me take you back to September 2013. Chris Christie is the governor of New Jersey. He's running for re-election, uh, and he needs a big win. And he was had suddenly had he achieved a certain amount of prominence in 2012 uh, when the hurricane hit, and he uh, walked along the shoreline with Bar- Barack Obama. He's one of the few Republicans. This is how insane the Republican Party is. He's one of the few Republicans who would openly meet with Barack Obama at a time of crisis. He was criticized for it. Oh God, he's helping Barack Obama uh, get win his reelection against Mitt Romney, and Christie was saying, "I'm just looking out for my state." So he, he, I'm just doing the right thing for people in New Jersey. I'm just putting politics to the side. Can't you appreciate, ladies and gentlemen? So it looked like Chris Christie might be the kind of Republican that Democrats, the Democrats liked, and that could be his calling card in 2016, where he could run by saying, I could win key swing states. I could win New Jersey, my home state. I could win Pennsylvania. He needed to solidify that reputation as the kind of Republicans that Democratic voters liked. And so he really wanted Democratic mayors to endorse him in the gubernatorial race of 2013, 2013 gubernatorial race, his run for re-election. He was really looking for some Democratic support, which is kind of weird to think about if you go back in time, how different things were back then than they are now. Because right now in the age of Donald Trump, the notion that Republicans need Democratic support is ludicrous. Donald Trump treats the Democratic Party and Democrats like he treats newspaper reporters. You know, they're like enemies of the state. Who wants them? Who needs them? But back then in 2013, this was going to be Chris Christie's ticket to the top. And so one Democratic mayor was Mayor Sakalich of Fort Lee. Fort Lee, New Jersey, which is just across the bridge from New York City in uh, just across the George Washington Bridge from New York City. And that is the bridge in Bridgegate. Uh, Sokolich would not endorse Christie. So on September 9th, 2013, somehow or other, two of three toll lanes for a local street entering off the bridge were closed. I don't know. It was a great mystery. These cones came down. The, the lanes were closed. Traffic backed up for miles. People freaking out, leading to the following exchange. Sokolich texted one of Christie's aides, quote, presently, we have four very busy traffic lanes merging into one toll booth. Bigger problems getting kids to school. Help, please. It's maddening. And a bunch of text exchanges then went out between Chris Christie aides where they said, is it wrong that I'm smiling? No, I feel badly about the kids, I guess. In other words, it sure looked as though the Republicans were up to no good. It sure looked as though this was Chris Christie's way of putting the squeeze on that Democratic mayor, trying to force him to endorse Christie. Christie later denied it, said he had nothing to do with it. But folks, this just underscores what I've always said. Republicans play to win. Let us namby-pamby. When they go low, we go high stuff. The Democrats embrace. They play to win. 
Anyway, there was investigations, there was indictments, there was convictions. Somehow, Chris Christie managed to slip out of all that without, uh, without getting any kind of indictment. Just call him Houdini, man. I don't know how he got out of that one, but he did. But it tarnished his career and ruined his reputation and his presidential campaign went nowhere. He wound up trying to suck up to Donald Trump, who, of course, was the nominee. He wanted to be chief of staff in the White House, but he didn't get the gig. Why? Because son-in-law Jared Kushner can't stand Chris Christie. Why? Because Chris Christie in a previous life was a federal prosecutor who prosecuted Jared Kushner's father, Charles Kushner. Kushner's daddy Kushner spent 14 14 months in federal lockup for tax evasion and witness tampering. And I'll tell you what, that is some marriage. The Kushner family and the Trump family. Just imagine Thanksgiving dinners as they talk about various convictions, whatever. Anyway, uh, now Chris, 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 Chris Christie has been relegated to being Rahm Emanuel's sidekick on the George Stephanopoulos show. We have a blast with this one. Play tapes of their uh, going back and forth. Mostly their exchange uh, go, follows this kind of path where Christie will say, good point, Rahm. And Rahm will say, excellent point, Chris. And then they hug. But back to Bill Stepien. He was a top aide to Christie. And in the wake of uh, Bridgegate, Christie uh, fired him. And Christie, you know, Christie's got a lot, a little more like Donald Trump than we realize. When something goes wrong, remember I said Donald Trump has to look for someone else to blame? Something went wrong at Bridgegate. Christie had to look for someone to, to blame. And he blamed, among other people, Bill Stepien. Here's a quote I was disturbed by the tone and behavior and attitude of callous indifference that was displayed in the emails by Bill Stepien. And reading that, it made me lose my confidence in Bill's judgment. And you cannot have someone at the top of your political operation you do not have confidence in. And so it went. The irony of it all is that uh, Bill Stepien is rose to the top in the Trump White House. He's now going to run the reelection campaign. And Chris Christie got kicked out. So Stepien survived and Chris Christie did not. Sleazy Republicans up to no good as always. We got a great show today. Greg Kelly will be on uh, in a little while from SCIU. Really looking forward to talking to him. But before we do that, Brian has some local news for us. Yes, we do. Uh, earlier today, I pulled double podcast duty and recording the Fran Spielman show earlier, and she had uh, Chicago Teachers Union President Jesse Sharkey and Vice President, friend of the show, Stacey Davis Gates on. Um, and uh, this is what they had to say uh, about schools reopening in the fall. The mayor hasn't even come out with her framework yet on how to even engage in the discussion of how and when to open schools and in what way. And yet you are saying, stop, we can't do this safely. Why are you jumping the gun this way? What have you concluded that she doesn't already know? Let let me have a stab at that. There's a tremendous amount of anxiety in the city, and and we just thought it was time that we say something to address the set of things that everyone's thinking about and everyone's worried about. Namely, that in two-thirds of the states across the country, coronavirus is spiking. We don't have uh, any commitment for resources that would make the beginning of school safe. Uh, There's no definite plan that's been articulated yet, and we just felt like it was important to break the silence 
coming from school leadership. And we, we consider ourselves very connected to public school. Both Stacey and I have our children in the public schools. And so, you know, we just felt like it was time to say something in public um, to, to address the concerns about safety in the next school year. And then Stacy later followed up with. Listen, you know, there's one thing that I do recognize um, in this moment with respect to the educators in our school communities and the families that depend on them. We're going to have to have enough lead time to plan and not having, you know, anything definitive. And we have, you know, about six weeks before C- CPS goes back to school. But like we have charter um, schools that are going back in August. Um, we need to be able to plan effectively. If anything, we understood um, about remote learning is that we needed more time to provide the proper infrastructure, especially for early childhood education. And I feel like Ben's going to have a few opinions on this. What do you think about schools yes, opening I up do. in the fall? Uh, all right. Oh, God, there's a lot to unpack here, by the way. Uh, I urge everybody to check out Fran's uh, show and check out that interview uh, when it drops. All right. Let, let's let's just break it down here, folks. Uh, as I speak, just uh, to give sen- people a sense of the backdrop to uh, uh, the general topic, the front page uh, headline in the Sun-Times, home delivered as always, my beloved bright one, Pritzker Lightfoot tried to block a, s- a spike and the governor divides states into smaller reopening regions with Chicago suburbs separated as mayor scolds young people who account for 30% of city's new COVID cases. So there's not only a spike throughout the country, uh, not only do we see uh, COVID-19 roaring back, not only are governors and mayors in states like Florida and Georgia uh, under siege because they opened up too soon, but here in Illinois, where uh, the leading Democratic mayor in the state, uh, Lori Lightfoot, and our Democratic governor, J.B. Pritzker, have been pretty vigilant uh, about uh, shutting down the state, we are in danger of having a spike. And I've always said, by the way, just on a tangent within a tangent, that I'm more, uh, I guess sympathy is the word for the predicament that uh, J.B. Pritzker is in, because as the governor of the state of Illinois, he has to deal with a very rebellious Republican Party that has him in court, uh, constantly challenging his ability to enforce uh, stay-at-home orders, social distancing orders, et cetera, and so forth. So he has some challenges that Mayor Lori Lightfoot does not have. Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, has almost complete and total control over what goes on in the city of Chicago. If she wants, she could defy J.B. Pritzker and be stricter than J.B. Pritzker, which he has done from time to time. If she wants, she can do things like shut down the lakefront, even though it's a questionable decision. Why, why would you shut down the lakefront uh, at a time? COVID, the greater danger everyone knows by now is like in bars or restaurants, not so much in the uh, along the lakefront. So we've teased her in this show for some of her policies. That said, overall, I have to give her credit it because she takes it seriously. Has she overextended herself at times? Yes. Has she claimed too much power? Yes. But at least she's dedicated, I believe, to the general sense that you have to, she's responsible for protecting the health and uh, welfare of the people of the city of Chicago. So that's sort of the backdrop to the question that Fran asked Jesse Sharkey and Stacey Davis Gates. And that question is, why would the teachers union has have sort of this knee jerk opposition to opening up the schools right now? Well, there's two answers uh, to that question. One has to do with the sort of subterranean fight, which I do not understand 
uh, between Lori Lightfoot and the Chicago Teachers Union. And you may call me biased uh, in this one because I am a big fan of Stacey Davis. Gates and she does come on this show all the time. Uh, but I criticize the teachers union for going too far uh, in endorsing Tony Preckwinkle, glorifying Tony Preckwinkle with words of praise that I don't believe she warranted and going too far in maligning Lori Lightfoot. Uh, she didn't, she didn't, we didn't even know what Lori Lightfoot's career was going to be like. So in, in a sense, uh, it was, it, that was unfair to her because it was a greater mystery. She was, a, she was an unknown quantity. That said, the election was over. Lori Lightfoot, when she was running, uh, assured McDumpkey and myself at the hideout when we, ha- we interviewed her that she would not hold a grudge against Stacey Davis Gates, that she would not hold a grudge against the Chicago Teachers Union. And yet it seems to me from the get go, she has held a grudge against the Chicago Teachers Union. She cannot bring herself to sort of like forgive and forget at least the forgive part. I, it's funny coming from me talking about forgetting part. Cause I, I remember grudges for like ever, Brian. Okay. I just, I don't get over grudges, but I am able to go, go on with my life. You know what I mean? I may not forget them, uh, but I forgive them. Okay. So, uh, so I, I, I could never understand what Lori Lightfoot one wouldn't be more tolerant and just more conciliatory. Uh, to the Chicago Teachers Union, particularly Stacey Davis Gates, who's the most prominent person uh, in the Chicago Teachers. I think Stacey Davis Gates is, like, if if you ask a, 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 an ordinary Chicagoan uh, to name one person affiliated with Chicago Teachers Union, they probably wouldn't name Jesse Sharkey as the president. They would probably know Stacey Davis Gates. And maybe that irritates Lori Leifert. I don't know. But she's always had this grudge against the Chicago Teachers Union. So bringing it back to uh, uh, COVID-19, I believe she should have, uh, when you when she was considering opening the schools, she should have brought the Chicago Teachers Union into the discussion at the get-go, just the way she brought in the restaurant community. Sam Toya, who's the head of the restaurant, he's another guest on Fran Spielman's show not too long ago, uh, Brian, Sam Toya. When, yep. uh, when, when Lori Lightfoot was discussing whether restaurants would open, she was constantly meeting with Sam Toya. There were, I remember the articles in the paper where they would talk about their, the meetings that they held. The teachers union are not part of this conversation. This is an age old problem in the city of Chicago where like the teachers are, the teachers union is like the, like the bad union. And it's treated like somehow the rogue union, you know, uh, Dennis always teases. They're like the Tupac union, you know, <laughs> they're just like too, too out of control for mainstream Chicago to deal with because what they had the courage to defy Rahm Emanuel. Ken Lewis did. You know, it's relatively recent, by the way, that the Chicago Teachers Union have been so bold uh, in defying mayors. For Until Karen Lewis took over, they were very compliant with Mayor Daley throughout the 90s and uh, in the early part of the O's. So there, this reluctance on the part of Lori Lightfoot to reach out to Stacey Davis Gates, or okay, if she, if she can't tolerate Stacey Davis Gates, or, uh, Jesse Sharkey then. To reach out to the Chicago Teachers Union and bring them in. And that's where we're at. Everything's in negotiation. So we have this moment now. Do we open schools? It's a real, it's a crisis in this country. Nobody knows the answer to it. The Republicans are pushing like hell. Open the schools. Open the school. Donald Trump, that's his mantra. Betsy DeVos, open the schools. So generally, if you have, it's a typical Republican-Democratic split, the Democrats would be saying, hold on, hold off. 
not ready to open the schools. But here in Chicago, that rift is complicated by this feud between Lori Lightfoot and the Chicago Teachers Union. And so it's like Lori Lightfoot is telling the Teachers Union, I'll let you know when I'm ready to open the school. Well, that's not an answer. You should be working with them. I mean, it's the teachers who will be exposing themselves to potential risk, not mayoral aides, not aldermen. You're asking teachers to go in a classroom. You won't even have the aldermen meet in the city council. They're still doing virtual meetings. So I, I feel as though all sides are still locked into this uh, battle that's left over from a mayoral election that took place April of 2019, well over a year ago. You know what? And I just saw Lori Lightfoot uh, make up with Bobby Rush, Congressman Bobby Rush, Brian. They they made up uh, with uh, Popcorn Gate. Uh, we talked about that a lot on this show when the police uh, took over uh, Bobby Rush's office one night and treated themselves to the popcorn. And there was a, a press conference where Lori Lightfoot joined Congressman Rush and they denounced the police and called for an investigation. Still waiting to uh, see the results of that investigation, see who knew what, when, et cetera, and so forth. But the point is, Bobby Rush said things about Lori Lightfoot during the campaign far worse than anything Stacey Davis Gates said about her. And yet Lori Lightfoot made up with Bobby Rush. So maybe it's time for Lori Lightfoot to reach out to Stacey Davis Gates. How about that, huh? Give her a call, have a meeting, and discuss a partner. I know it's hard for a mayor to treat the teachers union like they're partners, like they're the chamber of commerce, you know, like they're some big time lawyer uh, in downtown. I know you kind of want to treat them like they're lower level employees that do what you want, but you know what? It's the teachers who are going to be in the classrooms. And so they should be a uh, part of the discussion uh, going forward. So that's my opinion on that one, Brian. All right. And I got one more clip here that you, you sent to me uh, from MSNBC. You want to tee this up? Uh, MSNBC. No, I will save that for another time. Uh, that I thought we were going to have enough time to discuss that one, uh, but, but maybe we'll bring it back to tomorrow. We'll do a little tease and we'll have it tomorrow. We'll save it. We'll put it in the bank because I know Dennis said I got I got to keep you on time because if I don't, he said he's going to shave my head so I can look even more <laughs> like him. You don't want to do that. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. You can't leave Greg Kelly from uh, president of SEIU Healthcare on hold any longer. If he listens to any more smooth jazz, he's on hold, he's going to get angry at me. All right. Very good. We'll take a break and we'll be right back with Greg Kelly. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky show. Ben, take it away. All right. Very good. Thank you much, uh, Brian. With me on the phone is Greg Kelly from SEIU Healthcare. Are you there, Greg? I am here. 
Oh, you sound good, Greg. Uh, Yes, uh, thank you for waiting for us. I went on a, you didn't hear that. Uh, We were um, recording the show. We're not doing the live stream today. Uh, As I've been saying all day, uh, Dennis, our our usual producer, uh, is uh, with his family in Alton. His father passed away. Uh, So we're not doing the live stream. Uh, But uh, Brian, who's uh, sitting in for Dennis, played this uh, bit uh, exchange between uh, Stacey Davis-Gates uh, and uh, Jesse Sharking, Stacey, Stacey Davis Gates on the Franz Spielman show talking about their negotiations with uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. And I just went on a whole thing. So, Greg, that's why you were waiting, because I went on a whole thing about how come the mayor of the city of Chicago can't work with the biggest teachers union uh, in the city of Chicago. And I, I don't want to drag you into this one, Greg. I know you got your own issues you want to deal with, but I, 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 that's what we were doing while you were on hold. All right. Oh, that's quite all right, man. You're worth it. All right. Okay. Uh, so let's. Uh, I got a bunch of things I want to talk to you about. Uh, I'm gonna. We're gonna talk about the um, uh, Black Lives Strike for Black Lives on July 20th. We're gonna talk about the uh, situation at Loretto Hospital. Uh, we're gonna talk in general about nursing, nursing home safety issues. Uh, maybe defund the police issues. But before you leave, I'm just warning you right now. I'm going to drag you kicking and screaming back to a discussion, a debate issue we had have nothing to do with unions, uh, having nothing to do with local Chicago politics, uh, a little sports related thing. The last time Greg was on the show, which was a while back, I was asking about the Chicago Bears and their peculiar attitude toward black quarterbacks. And uh, there's a reason I I asked Greg that I'm writing this down, but just so you know, before we, we move on, I'll just tease folks way back when I think it was in 2018, Greg is like, I can't believe this guy is still bringing this up. Uh, I, Greg put on it. it the bears drafted Mitch Trubisky and I had never heard of Mitch. I'm a huge Bears fan, but I don't follow college football. So I they traded up to get Mitch Trubisky. And I had never heard him. I'm like, this guy must be really good. And Greg put on his Facebook wall. I don't know why they traded up for Mitch Trubisky. They could have taken Deshaun Watson. And I was like, yeah, even I heard of Deshaun Watson. Uh, (laughs) And so ever since then, whenever I talked to Greg, I'm like, what about the Bears? So we'll get to that. We'll get to that. All right. All right. Let's start with... um, the situation, uh, the uh, I think it's uh, July 20th, the strike for black lives. Uh, tell tell yeah. folks a little bit about So the strike for black lives is our, the SEIU International Union's effort at uh, lifting up the issues uh, that impact uh, black folks in the U.S. Uh, and Canada, for that matter, uh, and doing it uh, with the context of labor movement making the the point that uh, the fight for black lives and the fight for labor rights, union rights are all intertwined. Uh, So there will be actions around the country, uh, including here in Chicago area and throughout the state of Illinois and in Indiana for that matter. Uh, Greg, you mentioned that the fight for black lives and union rights are intertwined. What did you mean by that? I mean that in particular, as in this moment, as we talk about uh, systemic racism in this country, uh, you know, the the activism that uh, was sparked uh, after the murder of George Floyd, it's so much attention being paid today around systemic racism. Uh, and we know that 
workers, black workers in particular, uh, have been marginalized historically, that black labor has been undervalued. And so we are saying that uh, black workers need to be respected and that we need to make sure that we talk about the rights of workers to organize in this moment. Uh, it's a fundamental way in which we can begin to address many of the inequities uh, that our country faces right now. Uh, yes, in in general, this uh, I found this has always been um, uh, a struggle to sort of link the labor movement with mm-hmm. the I don't whatever to call it uh, the black empowerment movement, and mm-hmm. it's always seemed since the '60s maybe uh, when some of the labor unions uh, supported Martin Luther King, uh, it seems as though. They've gone down separate roads. How is your union trying to bring them together? I think we've said, SEIU has said that it is, we can't talk about economic justice without talking about racial justice, that they are all intertwined. Uh, Dr. King, uh, they fought for uh, sanitation workers in, in Memphis. He made the point that it's important that we understand that all of these struggles are intertwined, that you can't possibly begin to solve the question of economic justice in this country, which is the responsibility that labor has, and not talk about racial justice because they are so intertwined. And that to the extent that we can improve the lives of working black people, we can improve the lives of of all Americans. I, I'm with you 100%. This is one of my frustrations. I'll share it with you and get your reaction. Uh, so often, of course, Martin Luther King was killed uh, in 1968 when he went down to Memphis uh, to uh, support in a sign of support with striking sanitation workers, as you point out. So that's a very important point to put out there. He's very, he was working uh, on behalf of a union, on behalf of working people when he was in Memphis and he was shot. And yet, in the aftermath of what's the last, how long has that been? Over, over 40 years, almost 50 years, no, over 50 years. Good God, time has flown. In the 50 years since then, uh, Martin Luther King has sort of been turned into this uh, stock figure that's used by the right and particularly the Republican Party as that the only thing Martin Luther King stood for was, I have a dream that was... Uh, people should only be judged, should be judged by their character, not their skin color. This, this sort of like, how do I put this myth of Martin Luther King, uh, divorcing him, separating him from his worldview, from his leftist, I, from his leftist ideology, Greg, I'm going to put it out there. And I find that really frustrating, you know, and I, I, I'm always fighting with, Uh, my conservative friends on this issue because they just want to pick and choose which part of Martin Luther King they remember, honor that and ignore the other. Yeah. Yeah. It's very purposeful. I mean, I think at the end of his life, uh, Dr. King was clear that in addition to talking about the Vietnam war, uh, that we simply could not talk about racial justice without talking about economic justice and vice versa. Uh, It wasn't enough simply to give people the ability to sit at a counter if they couldn't afford to pay for the food at the counter. Uh, You needed to be able to do both. 
as well as protecting voting rights. And so he was clearly on the path, you know, through the Poor People's Campaign of really making uh, these strong links between racial justice uh, and economic justice. I'm, I'm by the point that I think you were making over the past 50 years, uh, that you know, sort of uh, delinking or decoupling, if you will, really has, I think, I think, been because the labor movement itself has gotten smaller, as well as the civil rights movement has gotten smaller. And so I think what we are saying that in this moment in particular, uh, given all the activity, given the inequities that, you know, have like been on our uh, plate here, that we need to bring them back together uh, if we're going to really make progress in this country. Uh, so to that point, what's going to happen on July 20th? So around the country, uh, workers will be in motion. There will actually be strikes of organized workers, uh, as well as not yet union workers, uh, all across the country and in Canada. For that, quite a quite a lot happening uh, around the country and in Canada. Again, striking for Black Lives. That it isn't enough simply to talk about uh, fairness and policing but that it's also an economic issue as well. So there will be strikes, including us. We'll be having a strike, possibly. Uh, before we uh, move on to talk about some of the, uh, the situations facing uh, healthcare workers here in Chicago, or Loretta Hospital's been in the news. We'll get into that. But you mentioned uh, the police. Does your union have a position on the defund police movement? Yes, we have, in fact, said uh, nationally that our country, we're at a, a point where we need to have fair uh, policing, that there needs to be accountability of police forces around the country. Uh, here in Chicago, we have said that CPD needs to be out of CPS and that that money needs to be used uh, to support things outside of policing, mental health counselors, uh, even security officers in schools that CPD does not need to be in CPS. Uh, and that there needs to be greater accountability across the board uh, because it's our members who are largely black and brown who have been victimized by lack of accountability for police. And so we, and defunding, reappropriation, reprioritization, however you want to frame it, but we've spent $1.8 billion this year, or we will, on policing. Uh, can you imagine if we just took a fraction of that money and put it into mental health, if we put it into real investment in communities, uh, we have uh, a changed situation. So we're, we think that we need to fundamentally change the way in which police are funded and the way that they are held accountable in the city and around the country. Now, when you, when you talk about defunding police, do you ever get uh objections from some of your members, some of your constituents uh, who are concerned about their neighborhoods losing police. This has been a topic of controversy. Uh, different guests come on my show, uh, Greg, with different points of view on this. Do you ever get sort of a blowback of opposition from members who are saying, hey, Greg, not so fast. We want police in our communities. Well, what we hear, and we've been on this path with our members for quite a long time, even going back to the period of the discovery of the Laquan McDonald tapes that our members who are mostly black and brown 
have said that we have the wrong priorities in policing, uh, that it, you can't lock up entire communities uh, and expect them to get better. And we've, you know, we were early supporters of uh, our state's attorney, Kim Fox, and it's because our members understand that we have to have a fair criminal justice system. And so, and that's interconnected uh, to racial justice. So we've been on this road for years now. Uh, and so it's nothing new for our members. We are just now uh, in working in concert with others. Uh, the murder of George Floyd has just revealed uh, just how bad this is working out for our members in their communities. By the way, to this point, I was having a conversation uh, with uh, one of your top aides, James Muhammad, uh, before uh, we went on the air. And I was telling him that I just read this article uh, in the newspaper that Berkeley, the city in uh, California, I don't know if you saw this, but the city in California voted seven and nothing. I want to say it was uh, the city council voted, I forget what the vote was, uh, but they voted is that, that police officers would no longer follow me in this, Greg, no longer be responsible for traffic stops for like uh, traffic violations. So let's say I was telling James, let's say you, you, you go through a red light, a police mm-hmm. officer would not be a person responsible for pulling you over. I guess they would have traffic aides do that, or I'm not quite sure how they would work it out, but that is an example, I think, of what you're talking about, uh, taking some of the responsibilities that police officers now have, moving them out of the police force to some other uh, sect of employees, which SEIU can organize, by the way. Uh, You're free to organize workers. And uh, and, uh, I got to take a deep dive in that. But is is that the kind of example sort of of what you're talking about? That's one example. I think, you know, everything from, you know, cops are being called to deal with mental health issues. If someone is, you know, threatening uh, to hurt someone or hurt themselves, is it, does it make sense to have a police officer come mm-hmm. or does it make sense to have a mental health professional come? Uh, there are so many things in, you know, in our society in which we just reflexively call police to handle who are in many cases, even trained to, to deal with. Uh, why don't we have people who are professional and trained to address many of these things instead of reflexively uh, looking at it as a law enforcement issue? And I think there's there are a whole list of things like that. Yeah, well, we'll see if it uh, this movement comes to Chicago. Uh, this persistence uh, from the mayor on, for instance, taking police out of the schools. We'll see uh, something as as I hesitate to call it radical because it it just on the on the face of it it makes sense uh, to move traffic stops away from the responsibility of police officers. They can get into policing, detective work and uh, solving crimes, yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, all right. Now let me get you, uh, as, long, as long as I'm talking about things that James Muhammad are uh, earlier in the day, I'm going to go on one of my rants that he, I already subjected him to Greg. So now I'm going to subject you to it and get your thoughts. So was it yesterday? I was reading a story in the newspaper uh, about the Republicans moving their convention to Florida from North yeah. Carolina, at least a portion where Donald Trump is going to give a speech because right? Donald Trump is determined to give a speech and North Carolina has these, uh, he needs that. So not just a speech. He has to have people like beaming at him, Greg, with, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, moved it to Florida 
Uh, and now the issue is, will any will Republicans show up in Florida, hear his speech, or are they going to be too scared of uh, getting COVID-19? And they quoted some politician, and I cannot remember his name, Greg, but I just, he's some kind of official with the Republican Party. And I'm paraphrasing his quote. And he said that going to Florida uh, to cheer on Donald Trump when he accepts his nomination is one of the most important contributions he can make as a Republican to our country. And so he feels compelled to go. And if he catches the disease, if he gets the virus, if he gets sick, well, that's God's will. And he's just going to live with it because that's what God had sent it. And I read that and Greg, my attitude immediately was, well, what about the medical care workers that are going to have to treat you? If you, Are you just going to say, oh, I'm sick. I'm going to go in the back alley and die. No, you're yeah. probably going to fight it. You're going to want to go to a, a hospital gonna, and get treatment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredibly selfish, uh, self-centered. And that's the part that people aren't getting, even just around wearing masks. Right. right. It's not simply about your own individual freedom. It's about all the other people uh, that you might be exposing uh, to COVID-19 and all of the healthcare workers, like the folks we represent who are swamped. In Illinois, we're actually doing, we're actually making significant progress, but around the country in these hot spots where the uh, healthcare workers are getting sick and dying themselves uh, and they're overworked. They don't get days off, uh, even when they get sick. And so folks aren't thinking about it uh, in the right way. It isn't really a, an issue of freedom. It's about how what you're doing impacts so many others uh, and the system that they are charged with trying to uh, take care of. It's, it's, it's a sad moment for our country, really. Uh, Candace Castillo comes on the show from time to time, political operative here in the city of Chicago. Uh, she has said she was the first person I heard say this. So I always give her credit uh, for the quote, which is uh, that the Republican opposition to wearing masks and stay at home orders uh, began roughly around the time they came to the conclusion that uh, mainly black people were getting the disease, dying from it. Yeah. Now, that, of course, is a, 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 a faulty premise to think that only black people can get the disease. But that's her point, that that the opposition somehow or other uh, emerged when, when um, Republicans thought that they were not going to get it. Do you think there's a similar attitude, uh, disrespect toward uh, nursing home workers and uh, just hospital workers in general uh, who yeah. are, are? Go ahead. Explain. Yeah, I would also say in addition to black folks and, and now it's morphed into uh, Latinos as well, I would also say older people, right? We, we, you know, we have a bad way of doing which we treat our elderly. Uh, and so that was the other thing. It's like if, if you're old and elderly, you're somehow uh, expendable. Uh, but as it relates to healthcare workers, it's absolutely true. We don't you know, we call them heroes, right? But they don't get treated like that. Uh, and they are embattled uh, there, even in this moment, as we've sort of, in Illinois anyway, made some progress. Um, you're not seeing as much of the stuff saw in, in April and May, uh, but they still work in those conditions where people are getting sick and they're getting sick. And we now know that thousands upon thousands of healthcare workers are dying as well. Um, 
So, you know, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate moment that we're in. And I always like to remind folks because of the folks we represent uh, that it isn't just about doctors or it isn't just about registered nurses. We love them, but it's also about those folks who work in food service, right? Or who have to clean up rooms as janitorial or housekeepers uh, that are nursing assistants. Those are the folks we represent and they get forgotten about. Why? Because they're mostly women and they're, uh, mostly women of color. And so um, it's, it's a, we are in a perfect storm and it, and I honestly have no idea how this plays out, but we have a reckoning with, uh, as a country uh, that we have to confront it. I don't know how it turns out. It's just not going to be good. No, I'm with you. This has somehow or other become a cultural divide. I remember uh, earlier, early on in the pandemic, uh, the, the major uh, networks did a, a tribute to frontline workers. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, they had uh, Steve Colbert, Jimmy Fallon, uh, Jimmy Kimmel were the hosts. They were co-hosts. They had various, like Stevie Wonder, they showed him, he sang a song, Elton John sang a song, and it was tributes mm-hmm. to front, uh, okay, frontline workers. And it was so blue in its culture. Yep. And I watched that show, Greg, and I thought, there's no red. And you know what I mean by blue and red. Blue being Biden states, red being uh, Trump yeah. states. It was as though this pandemic only affects blue. <laughs> I'm like, yep. even this, this, this moment where we're supposed to feel good and work together as a country, even that. Is polarized. Yeah, I think it it starts from the top, and uh, you know I think you know just think about nine eleven, right? We can talk as much as we want about W and his failures, and but I think after nine eleven, you know his approval was what like ninety percent or something. Uh, you know, obviously he failed miserably by taking us into unnecessary war. But the point is that there was some leadership there, uh, rallied the nation uh, to engage. Uh, We have a president today who is either incapable of of doing it or loves the division. And, uh, you know, this is far worse than, than anything we could have imagined. It would be great to have national leadership uh, that rallies the country and we just don't have it. All right, I'll get to presidential politics in a little while, while but uh, first of all, why don't you update on what's going on at Loretta Hospital here in Chicago? Loretta Hospital is a safety net hospital in the Austin community, west side of Chicago, uh, that you know is not a wealthy institution. Uh, for years, we have uh, worked with them to try to secure funding through the state, uh, along with other safety net hospitals that really operate in the margins. I mean, they, they do incredible work uh, with very little in, you know, underserved communities. Uh, but Loretto has taken the position here lately that they don't want to pay their workers, that despite the risks that the workers there have taken in the midst of COVID, that they aren't deserving of, of decent wages. We know that Things are tight, but they have the ability to do better. Uh, our members have uh, talked and and have fought on behalf of Laredo, fought on behalf of those communities at great 
expense to themselves. Uh, Loretto just fails to do uh, a little bit. Um, and and we're just demanding members are upset and decided to authorize a strike. And so as of at the 20th, uh, our members are prepared to walk off their jobs, um, protect themselves. They deserve more. Loretto can do better. And uh, so we're looking at a strike on July 20th. We still have a few days left to avoid it. Um, but right now, Loretto has not made enough movement to simply recognize sacrifices of the workers there uh, when they can do better. And so uh, that's what's uh, set for July the 20th right now. How many workers are we talking about that would go on about strike? 100, about 180. 180, uh-huh. actually. Okay, 180. And uh, we'll, I remember the last time, uh, I think uh, I think Jackie was on the show, and they were on the eve of a strike, uh, and it was avoided at the last moment. So I'm hoping a little movement on the uh, negotiations can avoid this one as well, avert this one, but we'll see. We're All right, let's. No, our uh, members, they, they don't want to strike. They've been given no choice. All right, let's move on to uh, national politics for the moment. You have a uh, a favorite uh, vice presidential candidate that you you would love for uh, Joe Biden to select. Well, I, th- I think there's an embarrassment of riches. That you know, I think there are any number of ca- potential good candidates. You know, I have my some of my own personal favorites, but I think you know most of the ones that I've seen. You know, from Elizabeth Warren to you know, Val Den- Demings is an interesting one to me. Kamala Harris, uh, you know, Stacey Abrams is someone that I personally uh, have adored since he ran for governor. Um, there are a lot of really good uh, potential candidates. Susan Rice, I think, in her own way, brings experience and uh, a gravitas to the role that I think is needed now more than ever. Um, so I think, you know, I, I do think that he picking a woman and a woman of color in this moment, uh, would send a huge message. Um, and it's important that he picks someone that, uh, can lead if necessary, if he's able to. Val Demings is an interesting uh, name for you to mention. She, of course, is a congresswoman from Florida. Before that, she was chief of police. We were just talking mm-hmm. about the defunding police movement. Interesting choice that would be if Joe Biden were to take some uh, a police woman, a former police woman, as his running mate. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's very interesting. She, I think she started out as a as a social worker and then became a beat police officer and then rose through the ranks to become chief of police for Orlando. Uh, I think she has a unique perspective on policing as a as a black woman, and uh, it would be an interesting thing. I, you know, the way she handled. The impeachment proceedings was remarkable, uh, and I think she brings credibility to this to the issue that uh, is sorely lacking right now. Mm-hmm. Well, my personal belief is that he's going to choose Kamala Harris. Uh, I have no ends uh, with Joe Biden, so that's just me making my one of my hunches. I always make hunches and bets, and I usually lose them. So don't go to Vegas <laughs> with that one. Uh, but that's why I think well, he's going to. Well, she if. if you know, folks look at her beyond this her time as uh, you know a DA in San Francisco, and look at what she did as Attorney General and as U.S. Senator. Uh, I think she evolved, and I know that 
She's been a strong supporter of labor in California and, and nationally. Um, but, you know, people, they look at the totality of a record. So, Yeah, it would be interesting. It's funny you should say, because uh, I don't, obviously Kamala Harris has a higher profile than Val Demings. Uh, who yeah. again was a police chief, <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> but somehow yeah. or other, Kamala Harris is the cop. Uh, maybe it's because people it's don't. What's that? I said it's funny, right? Uh, that uh, you know, Val Demings is actually a pol- literally was a police officer. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting moment. I I think at this point, someone who's smart, reliable. And that can lead the country of some of the things that I'd, I'd, I'd be looking for if I was Joe Biden. Yeah, I'll take any of those names that you mentioned over Mike Pence. That's for certain. All right. Absolutely. Let's close it with the sports and no ducking and dodging, Greg Kelly. Uh, <laughs> you, you put it on your Facebook wall. You probably never thought it would come back to haunt you two years <laughs> later. Well, like you know, the that union. Was What's that? It was 2017, actually. Oh, three years ago. My, my bad. Uh, so anyway, I have this notion that there's not a lot of sports lovers in the union movement. That's just my general sense of things, Greg. So I was so shocked that a union guy even knew who Deshaun Watson was. Okay. I'll bet you if you would ask. Bob Ryder would have issues with that for the NFL. Okay. There's Bob Ryder, okay, who played football. Uh, yeah. And then, well, no, Stacey Davis Gates played basketball. So maybe I'm being unfair to union yeah. people. But I was so <laughs> shocked when I saw all the lefties I know, man, they don't know anything about sports. And uh, so here, here's the guy with like the biggest leftist union in Chicago with an opinion. <laughs> I'm like, what? I was with you 100%. I didn't, well, see, I've, again, I follow the Bears, but I don't follow college football, but I, I do, I, you know, I watch the championship game. Most football fans watch the, the NCAA championship for it's a Monday night game in January. And I saw this Deshaun Watson lighting it up. I'm like, oh, take him. And uh, they took this guy I'd never heard of. They drafted up to take Mitch Trubisky. And then the other guy I never heard of who was taken with the 10th pick. And again, I don't follow college football. Patrick Mahomes has now turned out to be perhaps. If he stays healthy, he will be one of the three greatest quarterbacks of all time. That's my opinion. Yep. Okay. I agree. Right up yeah. right up there with Tom Brady, uh, Tom Brady and uh Joe Montana. So I have jumped to the conclusion. And I say this as a a longtime Bear fan, that the Chicago Bears have how do I put this euphemistically, Greg Kelly? Problems. <laughs> 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 Issues. With yeah. black quarterbacks, your response, please. I, I completely agree. I, I don't know. I mean, of course, they've had black quarterbacks, Ben Sevens, and then they had Slash for a minute. But at some point, somebody decided after after Cordell Stewart that they just weren't going to have a black quarterback. The, the Sean Watson, uh, the failure to pick him makes no sense to me. And to pick Trubisky, who I think started like seven games his entire college career, I'm probably underselling, you know, but he, and traded two picks to get him. But Deshaun Watson led their team to a national championship against top flight competition. 
And so I, it just made no sense to me why they did. I could understand why Patrick Mahomes, they didn't pick him. I should have, they should have picked him over, over Trubisky, but Watson was a no brainer to me. Uh, and so when they just went right past him, it just reinforced what I've said about many Chicago teams and not just the bears, but especially the bears that they don't want the face of the organization. Uh, black, black quarterback too. Yeah. I, I, there was just, it made no sense to me. They should have drafted Deshaun Watson. And we see that even more so now. Well, in retrospect, they should have drafted Patrick Mahomes. That's my oh, yeah. opinion. Now, let me yeah. ask you this. And because your Facebook, uh, I'll never <laughs> Greg Kelly, three years later, the head of a union, he's being asked about this for his Facebook post. <laughs> Shouldn't have put it up if you didn't want to be asked about it. All right. Now, so did you know you put Deshaun Watson up, but were you even aware of Patrick Mahomes' existence back then? I was aware of him, uh, but and and you couldn't have predicted. I don't think, uh, certainly not looking at his body of work in college, that he'd turn out to be as good as he is. Uh, Watson was clear; he was just he was a flashing red light. Like why? Why the he had the experience in top flight competition, uh, had all the skills, had no there were no sort of issues with his character. Uh, just an easy call, uh, but they they whiffed. All right. Well, I, I'm going to tell you about another conversation I had with a dear friend of mine named Norm. And you have to, you probably have friends like this in your life. If I say the sky is blue, Norm will immediately say the sky is red. Okay. So whatever I say, he says the other thing. Okay. Even if in his heart of hearts, he agrees with me. He's one of my best friends in the whole world. We love each other dearly. All right. So we have this conversation all the time uh, about Mitch Trubisky and Ryan Pace, who's the general manager of the Bears. And he always says, uh, Benny, you didn't know Patrick Mahomes was going to be so great. So don't act all superior to Ryan Pace. That's what, okay, to which I say, I'm not the general manager of the Chicago Bears. Right. That's not your job to know that, right? <laughs> That's correct. That'd be like asking me, uh, criticizing Ryan Pace because he doesn't know how TIFFs work. Well, how <laughs> the hell? I... <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's inexcusable yeah. that none of the aldermen in the city council know how a TIFF works, but <laughs> I do not think that Ryan Pace should have to know how a TIFF works. Okay. It's general manager. So uh, anyway, there's that. All right, before I let you go, your thought. I know you're. Uh, you love your White Sox. You excited about the White Sox season that's about to begin? I am very excited. That you know, one of the a big unfortunate things about COVID is that baseball got delayed. Love the White Sox. The talent is off the charts. Next three years, uh, they're going to have a World Series championship. Whoa! Okay, you heard it. All right, here's what, sir. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to put that on your Facebook wall today. <laughs> I probably have at least one already. I missed that one. Greg <laughs> Kelly always get in trouble with his Facebook posts. He's like kicking us. What I put that Deshaun Watson thing. Greg, we'll be in a nursing home, you and me, fifty years from now or whatever, and I'll be going. You are right about Deshaun Watson. Yep. Yep. Anyway, all right. 
you stay safe and, uh, and sound Greg Kelly. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you having me, man. Take care of yourself, brother. All right. Very good. That's great. Greg Kelly. Uh, he's the leader of SEIU healthcare and, uh, big time sports fan, Brian. And, you know, we do regular, about mm, I'd say at least once a month, maybe twice a month, we have a sports show. So I think I'm going to bring him in for some of the sports segment. We're doing one next week. We're going to preview the baseball season. Uh, I'm going to reach out to Joe Cowley of the Sun-Times. He's a regular on this show. Bring him back to talk about the Bulls season. Uh, well, there is no Bulls season. The <laughs> NBA season. The beloved Bulls. So anyway, we'll have some more sports talk. Uh, I want to thank uh, Greg Kelly and, of course, thank the, uh, uh, Brian doing an excellent job uh, at his studio in Berwyn. I could see him on my screen. He's got all these guitars uh, in the background. Uh, he will be engineering my show tomorrow. And I'm going to really beg him pretty please to take one of those guitars off the wall and play it for us so he can show the world that he can not only uh, work the soundboard, uh, he can also play the guitar. Uh, take care, everybody. See you tomorrow.